Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we have a guest with us. So Mary Hunter is joining us. And Mary's been a guest on these podcasts before, and she is also the main presenter, the co-presenter of our Listen and Learn introduction to uh, behavioral analysis that we have available through the Equosity website. Mary has a master's degree in behavioral analysis. She's the president of the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference And she, with Dr. Jesus Rosales-Ruiz, wrote the book on Portal, the Portable portable Operant Research and Teaching Lab. And Portal is always a ripe subject for discussion. Mary, I thought um, one of the reasons that I thought it would be fun to chat with you is that I really started paying attention to what you were doing when I started reading years ago. I forgot. I don't even know when you started writing them but your stale Cheerios posts. And they were always, uh, they were always worth reading. But I don't, I don't actually want to start with the stale Cheerios post. I want to start with your master's degree because your master's thesis, you examined the effects of a single reinforcer during shaping. And I don't think we've ever really talked about that. But before we jump into some of the fun topics that you've been discussing in the stale Cheerios. Would you like to fill us in on the research that you did and what it showed? Because it's it's really, it was really fun. I think it's important to understand as well. Okay, that, that sounds that sounds like a good place to start. And I'm excited to be here today. I, you know, I was thinking it's been a while since the three of us have all gotten to sit down and chat together. So yes. um, it's going to be really fun. I think we'll have some good conversation. Um, so for my master's thesis, now we're going back a handful of years, but I, so I did my master's thesis using Portal. And for people who aren't familiar with Portal, because we may have a few people listening who aren't, Portal is a tabletop shaping game. So you have a collection of small objects or little toys or trinkets, and one person plays the part of the teacher and another part person plays the part of the learner. And the teacher gives the learner either one or more objects and the teacher can't, just like with animal training, you can't talk to the, uh, your learner at all. You have to shape behaviors entirely through the operation of the clicker and through the arrangement of the objects. And so we use Portal a lot as a teaching tool to teach people about shaping and about different behavior analytic concepts, but we also can use Portal as a research tool. And so I did my master's thesis with Portal, and um, since then we've had other students do research projects with Portal as well. But what I looked at from my master's thesis was something that I had heard um, Bob Bailey talk about, which he calls desperation clicks. And so uh, what what Bob had, had described and what other people have, have seen and described too is sometimes we get into these situations where we're training, and we're trying to shape a certain behavior, but the animal's doing different things. The animal isn't always doing exactly the behaviors we're looking for. And then sometimes what happens is you get into maybe kind of a long interval of time where you're waiting for something, waiting for something, and it's not happening. And often what happens is the trainer starts feeling a little uncomfortable. They start feeling a little desperate. And so then they may pick something that looks kind of like what they want, or maybe it doesn't even look quite kind of like what they want, but they're, they're just feeling really desperate. And so they click for something and they try to reinforce a behavior just to get, get the animal back on track and get a, get a high rate of reinforcement. What I often hear is, because I'll, I'll look at this and think, why, why did you just click then? And they'll say to me, because I hadn't clicked for a while. It's coming yeah. from a good place. It's people who want to be generous with their animals, but... But we need to understand that our generosity, the consequences may not be, from the, from the learner's point of view, may produce 
results that put our animal in more of an emotional hardship than otherwise. So, can, so, so continue with the story. So, um, and, and I have another thought now, something we should talk about later on, but, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole yet. So we'll, we'll okay. stick with the thesis right now. So Bob and others had reported this and, but what Bob had reported is that often what happens is you do this one desperation click for this behavior that, that is not quite what you wanted. And then the animal, in some situations, it seems like the animal gets stuck on that behavior. And now they're repeating that behavior over and over again. And it may be difficult to get them back on track to what you were trying to work on. So the goal for my master's thesis was to see if we could replicate this in portal, which is an interesting thing to think about because there's all sorts of things that, you know, as animal trainers, we know that certain things happen or certain things work in certain ways, but a lot of these things haven't been studied really systematically or from a scientific perspective. So it, by trying to replicate things systematically and see what variables are involved in exactly how things work, we often can learn more things. We can learn more details about and more insights about how these, these phenomena actually work. So what we did in Portal was we I have to remember now, this is so long ago, um, but, but the basic gist of it was we taught someone, we taught, we taught the learners how to do a behavior um, with an object, and then we reinforced them for doing several different behaviors with that object. First, with just one object present, just to kind of get the behavior going and, and to kind of teach them the rules of the game and how it was going to work. And then we gave them access to more objects, but we continued reinforcing them um, for doing behaviors with this one target object. And then after a period of time, we put that object on extinction. So it no, no longer any reinforcement. So then we had a period of no reinforcement where they're sampling and touching all of the objects and trying to figure out what to do and what would earn reinforcement. And then there would be one new object that they would touch and we would click. And then after that, that would be followed by a one minute period of extinction. And uh, which is a long time to sit and watch someone, someone touching objects. But what we found, which was really interesting, is after they got that one desperation click for that one new object, what happened reliably was that there would be a big, what you would call an extinction burst with that one target object where they would just keep interacting with it, playing with it, trying different things with it over and over again, then eventually that would subside and they would go back usually first to the initial object that had the longer history of reinforcement. And then they would go start sampling the other objects as well. But the, the interesting thing is in some ways it was a, it was a bigger amount of responding to this one object that got the one click than what you might expect given that that object had only had one one reinforcement you know so it, i think it has some implications for our animal training like like what we were talking about earlier you know sometimes we feel like we should give a reinforcer just to get things back on track but that's not always going to be what's going to be the best for for our training um you know long term for the behaviors that we're trying to trying to build one of the interesting things that we did see is you know, this, this idea of resurgence where, you know, we did get this big burst of responding to the, the new object, but then eventually they did usually go back to the, the initial object, but it wasn't, you know, it, if you looked at the expressions on their faces, it wasn't necessarily a, a pleasant process for them, you know, so as far as using one click or multiple clicks to try to get our learners back on track, as a practical training solution, I'm not sure it's the most efficient way to get to get back to where we, you know, get, get back to where we want want the learner to be. So, an unclear reinforcer during an extinction period does not have the same impact as an unclear reinforcer in a shaping session that is going pretty well. You may be able to get away with a bad click, you know, sometimes we do that if the shaping is going pretty well, 
But if it's a desperation click, meaning you're probably in an extinction process, you're, you know, you're, the animal doesn't understand, is trying all kinds of thing, and then you come in with that unclear reinforcer that has a much worse impact than if things were just going pretty well and you just, whoops, back click. Would you say that's true? Um, I think it, I think it can be true. We did not actually look at that in the research study, like having, we didn't have a variation where there wasn't a period of extinction. So that would mm -hmm. be, that would be further research that would need to be done. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think one way to look at or explain what happened in, in my research is they had this reinforcement history for doing different types of different actions with this one object. So if you think about it in terms of kind of stimulus control and cues, every time they got a reinforcer, then they would go back to that same re object, do something else with it, get another reinforcer, go back to it, do something else with it, get another reinforcer. So you can think of it that once when they received that reinforcer, it was like that reinforcer was the cue almost telling them to go back to that same object. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So then, so then when they, so if that's kind of the, the rule or the pattern that they're operating under, then when they got the click for interacting with the new object, then they're thinking, okay, that click means go back and keep doing that same thing again. So that may have produced the increase in, in responding kind of this rule of, that, of them thinking that when you get, when you get a click for something, you know, keep doing that, keep doing that behavior. So that actually makes it even more interesting because that's a higher level concept that understanding of when you are clicked, you get reinforced, go do the, go repeat what you just did. Because I've seen when we play the training game, the old style of training game with people who have never, who are new to clicker training. One of the things that I find so fascinating is that they don't return to what they just did. And even though that's been part of the instruction and they've already had some exposure to clicker training and you're saying, you know, when you hear the click, go back and see if you can figure out what you just got reinforced for. And even in the middle of the game, when you give that verbal prompt, you'll see people fail to go back and, and say, what was it that I was just doing? And when you watch an experienced person in the training game, they're asking questions through their behavior. Oh, you just clicked me. You just clicked me. And I was just taking a step forward. So now they'll, they'll very deliberately take a step forward. And you can see that they're, they're asking a question. Is this what you want? But they know to return to what was just occurring. So that's an interesting that's an interesting thing to chew on of what is this process that occurs and where the, the learner really does get it that, oh, I'm supposed to repeat the behavior. So if you had done desperation click experiment with people who are very brand new to the whole process compared to people who maybe had more familiarity with it, would you, do you think you'd have gotten different results? So we were doing it with, there's a couple of different thoughts here. We were doing it with people who were brand new to Portal, but part of what we did in, in the initial, the initial several little sessions that they had, give them enough experience and set up this pattern that they actually, what they were trained to do was to do several different actions with the same object. We were establishing like the same history for all the people that when you're in this context of playing this game portal, when you have an object, you should keep, you know, do a behavior for a while, and then you're going to have to do a new action with that object. And then you're going to have to do another action, but with the, with the same object. If I had done something completely opposite, if I had gotten these were these were undergraduate students from the university. Oh, if I had, <laughs> those, those are your lab rats. Right, right. <laughs> um, um, so if I had gotten undergraduate students and I had started off by playing the equivalent of like 101 things to do with a box with them yeah. with portal. And for people who aren't familiar with that, basically, if I had given them portal objects and 
and actually set up the rule that every time I click, you're going to get a block, but now you have to do something different for the next click and you have to do something different. You know, you have to interact now with another object and now with another object and now another action with another object and everything had been different. And I had set up this rule that every time you have to do something different, then I could have had a long period of extinction and I could have had one desperation click for touching a new object and there wouldn't have been any sort of increase in responding, I don't think, because why would they go back to that object? Because the rule was now go find another There's object. An object. Yeah. So, so for every question that gets answered, or or each variation that you can set up in terms of the of a study, there are five, ten more possible setups that will produce different answers. But the, I guess the the bottom line is don't click just because it's been a while since you clicked and reinforced. So what yeah. do you do instead? Well, so so actually, this is a good segue. This is what I was thinking about earlier when I said a rabbit hole we could go down, but maybe we can go down this rabbit hole now and talk a little bit about rate of reinforcement. So several years ago at Clicker Expo, Jesus, Dr. Jesus Rosales-Ruiz had a lecture about high rates of reinforcement, and we were thinking about and talking a lot about rate of reinforcement at that time. And one idea we were talking about some then and really kind of what's the word like stuck out to us is that you know oftentimes why people get into these situations like with the dis the desperation clicks is because everyone talks about how during training you need to have a high rate of reinforcement mm -hmm. and so what we're looking for and we're like oh uh, uh, i haven't clicked in a while and we start feeling like we have a low rate of reinforcement and we need to increase the rate of reinforcement And so we're trying to just click for random behaviors to increase the rate of reinforcement. But the thing is your, your rate of reinforcement isn't something that, it's not something that- It's an outcome. Separate, yeah, it's an <clears throat> outcome. It's, it's not something outcome. that's separate, separate from everything else. You can't, you can't keep everything else the same. You can't keep your training environment your set, the same, your behavior the same, the props you're using the same and just arbitrarily increase the rate of reinforcement. You have to change things about, you know, the, your training criteria or where you're training or how you have the environment set up or what props you're using. And that's how you increase your rate of reinforcement. So I think if you find yourself in this situation where you go, oh, I, uh, I, I'm feeling desperate, I'm feeling desperate, I need to click something, the, the solution is not to just start clicking behaviors, but The solution is, as Alex would say, to go have a cup of tea. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, um, give, give your horse a big handful of treats in a bucket or take them over to, you know, um, now's the perfect time. If, if your horse can have grass, take them over somewhere where they can graze a little bit. Go have your cup of tea and figure out how do you rearrange your training setup so that you will have the, your horse more easily doing the behaviors you want. And then as a result, the outcome will be a higher rate of reinforcement, yep. which is often easier said than done. Yes. But I think that's, and so sometimes you may need to have multiple cups of tea. <laughs> <laughs> and, and depending upon what climate you're in, it can be hot tea or cold tea, since you're in a hotter climate than we are. But this, I think, brings us, it's, this is a beautiful segue to the stale Cheerios posts. Because you've recently started a whole new series of your stale Cheerio uh, blog posts that I've just been enjoying immensely because they're they're such they're such little gems that you share with us and they're just uh, the right size it's sort of like a nice bite size when when you're you're uh, uh, what is it when you're having a a multi course meal you don't want huge massive portions you know you don't want a whole book to read you just want this nice bite-sized gem to chew over. but always satisfying yeah a little paste a little pastry to go with your cup of tea yes that's right that's right that's right so how do, how do you come up what what's your process for finding coming up with the gems um i mean It's difficult because I have more ideas than I have time to write blog posts at this point. Um, but I, I just have a, um, 
a list of notes. And then whenever I'm thinking about something or have something where I'm like, oh, that would be interesting to write about, I just write down an idea. So then when I sit down to write a blog post, I have a whole long list of ideas to, to choose from. That goes back to one of the very early art and science of animal training conferences where Dr. Robert Epstein was the presenter on creativity and, and where does creativity come from? And one of the things he commented on that one of the habits that creative people seem to have is they always have uh, some way of jotting down ideas. And you would, you're confirming that. that yeah, yeah. You know, because what happens otherwise is I sit down to write and I say, oh, what was that that I was thinking about last weekend? You know, and I, yeah. and I don't remember anymore. So, um, you know, often I'll jot down an idea, but then if I have a few kind of thoughts that go along with it, I might jot down a few more notes as well. And then, so then I have a, a list to, to draw from. Um, but, you know, so I, I, um, I have all the training I'm doing with my own horse, Apollo. And then I have the online courses that I teach. Um, and then I also have some of my own training clients. And I, um, I still participate with the, with the ORCA students at the University of North Texas. So, you know, just all of the conversations we're having and the things that are happening, it, it gives me lots of ideas for, for things to share. Yeah. So in, in February, you had a post on how punishment can make things worse. And, and I'll, I'll just read a, a quick excerpt from it. Um, where you were talking about Dr. Gold Diamond and you said, I ran across a quote earlier this week. This quote explains why punishment is often ineffective for changing behavior. If the behavior is eliminated and if the critical reinforcer thereby also becomes unobtainable, we may get spontaneous recovery of the behavior or other behaviors may become established, some of which may be less than less desirable. And, and basically what that comes down to is that people will often punish a behavior that they don't like. And I think the example you used was barking. And they're not considering what is reinforcing that behavior. And so when the animal is prevented from doing the unwanted behavior, the barking, it's going to satisfy other ways to access the desired reinforcer. So you know, when we start, when we're encountering behaviors that we don't like and, and our emotional reaction to them, maybe that we're feeling angry or we're feeling frustrated because the dog keeps barking or the horse keeps biting at us and we think naturally about eliminating the behavior, but instead we need to go have another one of those cups of tea and think about how our learner, our animal is using their behavior to communicate their needs. And rather than resorting to punishment, we need to figure out what the animal uh, wants. And then we can teach new behaviors or we can modify the situation so that our animal can access these reinforcers. I just thought that was a brilliant, brilliant gem of a post and such an important concept. So it's worth highlighting. Uh, we'll send people back to read the actual blog post, but it's worth chewing on and talking about a bit more. So uh, I just did a quick run through and paraphrase of your blog post. What what would you want to add to that? So I, I think one thing that's interesting and and maybe even tricky here sometimes is often our animals are doing unwanted behavior. And we can sometimes come up with solutions that use positive reinforcement. But if we're still not getting at like, you know, in, in just everyday language, what you would say the underlying motivation of the behavior, we still may run into lots of problems. So like a, a horse example might be, say you have a horse who's a little bit girthy and he's nipping at you while you're, while you're putting on the saddle and tightening up the girth. You know, you could teach him how to keep his nose on a target and how to keep his head straight while you're putting on the saddle and while you're doing up the girth. But if he's, and, and you may be able to teach him how to do that. But if, if initially he was nipping at you because the, 
the the saddle was rubbing him or the saddle didn't fit or the girth was rubbing him or he has ulcers or he has ulcers or you know who who knows what's going on then you know you may be able to get where you can get through the saddling and he can stand politely and touch his target while you put the saddle on but then once you get on now he may have to resort to other behaviors to tell you that you know what human i actually really don't want you up there in the saddle um so i think i think it gets really tricky because we can use sometimes we can use positive reinforcement to build new routines and build new behaviors but if we're not addressing kind of what you would call the underlying cause then even though we're not using punishment it's still we still may get into a situation where we have a unhappy animal and that relates too to the thinking that and this is actually another one of your your stale cheerios posts that behavior that we don't want may look the same but have different different reasons behind it and like the jumping up uh, so a dog that jumps up on people uh, that there can be lots of different reasons why a dog would jump up and to our eye it all looks the same or horses that paw there are lots of reasons, you know, pawing can, it, it, the, the actual action of pawing may look the same to our, eye, to our eyes, but have very different causes, different reasons why the horse is pawing. Yeah, you could have a horse who paws because he's in colic, or I know Woody paws when he wants something. Yeah. I mean, it's ex at the opposite, you know, in one case it's pain, in the other case it's you know, it's motivation yeah. to interact. The, and the, so it's very, it's the same. I would say that the, same pawing, but. the pawing is forward movements. <clears throat> and so when you're uh, trying to get your horse to stand still in a, in a tie, you don't want him pawing. But when you're in, in front of a trailer and the horse starts pawing on the trailer ramp, you're cheering. So it's this, it's it looks like the same behavior. And in one <laughs> case, you're. Uh, you're trying to get rid of it, and the other you're celebrating. But I think this, this idea of we really need to look at what it, what sits behind that behavior before we jump in with solutions is a really important one. But just in our in our everyday kind of life, we're so kind of trained to look at just the appearance of the behavior. You know, if you get on social media or chat with people, or even look in like horse books or dog books, you know, if they have a list of problem behaviors, it's all, it's all like if your horse bites, if your horse bolts, if your horse rears, you know, if your horse kicks, it's all based on the, uh, the topography, the yes. appearance of the behavior. And same thing when people are asking questions, you'll see people ask, my horse does X, what should I do? And everyone jumps in, oh, my horse used to do X and this is what I did. My horse used to do X and this is what I did. And, and yes, the behaviors may look the same, but if the circumstances are different, someone else's solution or the solution you read in a book may not work for, for, the, for this behavior that you're experiencing. You know, I remember when I was really at the very, very beginning of my uh, exposure to horses, I used to ask the horse people around me, what does it mean when the horse does that? You know, let's say we were having dinner. And I'd say, what does it mean when he does? And they would always say, well, it depends. You know, it depends what the rest of his body is doing. It depends on the car. I hated it when they said that, but it's so true. You know, if you just say, what does it mean when a horse is taking his ears back? It can mean so many different things, you know, is the body tense, not tense? What's the context? Is there something scary around? Are they just paying attention? And it's like that for almost everybody part of the horse. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's true. It's when, if you only see a picture of a little part of an animal, you can't tell what's going on. So that's great. But Mary, what do I do with the horse that fill in the blank? We have to come up with a process for helping people. It's, it's no good to say, well, it depends. Because that, you know, okay, great, it depends. What does it depend on? What is my starting point? How do I, how do I solve my problem? 
So where do I begin? What do I look for? What do I look at? How do I solve my problem? Go for it. You start by you start by taking data, which means which which I mean it, it can mean different things in different in different circumstances. But I think one good way to start, or one I I have a really old blog post about this. We we could go and find the link, but I think one thing that often happens sometimes is I hear people say like pick whatever problem behavior. People say my horse does this all the time. Oh, right. Or my horse does this randomly. And so if we're trying to solve behavior problems, we have to start with the assumption that, first of all, behavior isn't actually random. And then number two, most likely your horse probably is not doing that behavior 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So, you know, one thing you can just, if, if you have a behavior and you're puzzled by it and you're not quite sure when it's happening or why it's happening, one thing you can just start by is, is taking notes. You know, when, when does it occur? Does it, what's usually happening beforehand and what's usually happening afterwards? So I had a, this was years ago when I, I, I don't teach group dog training classes anymore, but I had a, I had a, uh, I was teaching group dog training classes at the time. And I had a woman with a cute little King Charles Cavalier puppy. And she was frustrated because she had had the puppy for several months and it was kind of, it was kind of beyond the point where she felt like the puppy should be potty trained. And the puppy was still having, having some accidents during the day. And which is, which is frustrating if you have a, you know, if you have a puppy and you know, it's fun having a puppy, but it's not fun having a puppy who's being on your, your carpet. So she came to me and she was frustrated and she said, you know, the puppy's still peeing all the time and I don't know what to do about it. And so I said, you know what, just start keeping a log. And I want you to write down the time of day, you know, when you take the puppy up outside and then also write down if he, if he has accidents, what time of day it is, what's going on, what you were doing with him beforehand, what you're doing currently, even what happens afterwards. And she came back the next week to class and she said, she said, this is brilliant. She said, he's really only having a couple of accidents a day and they're all happening in the evening when I'm making dinner and then after dinner when I'm cleaning up and doing things in the kitchen. And she said, I was following all of your rules for taking him out frequently and watching him and doing other things. But she said, in the evenings when I was making dinner, I thought I was watching him because he was in the same room with me, but I really couldn't be watching him. So he often was, you know, wandering off and having, you know, sometimes having accidents because she thought, well, we're in the same room, so I, I can watch him, but she often wasn't watching him. And then she was kind of forgetting he was there and not taking him out frequently enough. So it wasn't that he was having accidents randomly or that he was having accidents all the time. He was having one or two accidents every evening while she was making dinner. So she just needed to take him out more frequently during that time or do other things so that he was closer to her and she could watch him or that he was occupied. And, but once she took data, she saw that the behavior was orderly and, and she saw kind of the, the conditions that were attached to that behavior. I think that's a really important point because when you have a problem behavior, it can seem as though it's, it's magnified. But it's sort of bigger than bigger than life. Uh, it's always occurring. My horse is always biting at me. My horse is always kicking. You know, whatever it is, that it gets magnified, and it seems as though it is occurring much more frequently than it actually is. And that when you take the data, you begin to say, "Oh, my horse kicks when I ask for his left hind foot," and that's when he's kicking. Well, that's that's information. You might have even thought he was kicking all the time. You didn't even realize it was just that yeah. one foot. Yeah. But it gets blown up in your mind because because it's scary when a horse kicks out or when a horse bites at you. Or it's annoying when your dog uh, has another leaves another puddle in the house. And these things get blown up and um, and become bigger than they actually are until you step back and you say. Oh, oh, it's occurring 
under these conditions. Okay, what do I do about that? Or, or you realize like he's his ears back and he's snatching at the treats and things like that when you're working with him in the stall, only when his stallmate is also in the stall next door. Yes. Um, you know, on, on the days when his stallmate is being ridden or turned out, he's he's fine, happy and and calm and uh, but you know, so there's there's often other factors like that that we're not even really paying attention to how they're changing, but our horse or dog or whatever animal, their behavior is changing systematically based on these other things that are occurring as well. Yeah. Which brings us to our old friend of video. Video, video, video. Because you often don't pick, you, there's, there's so many things that you don't pick up on until you have that other set of eyes, which is what the camera provides. Because you're in close, working with the dog, working with the horse, holding the target up, you're in close. And you don't necessarily notice that, um, oh right, the horse in the next door, in the stall next to us is right there in the corner. And they're having a, a little side conversation going on that you weren't aware of because your focus is so on the target. And the video reveals that. And the video is part of taking baselines. And, and then you can do the A-B reversals. You can say, well, is it really that? You know, I, I think yeah. it's when my horse, my horse kicks out when, fill in the blank. My horse bites at me when, fill in the blank. Well, let me change the conditions. Does that change? And, and so I can, I can begin to uh, eliminate certain, re certain conditions under which the behavior is occurring and it may be a simple management solution. Okay, I want to click or train my horse in the stall. I can't, I'm in a boarding barn, I can't move the other horse. Maybe I could move my horse and train and work out in a paddock where there isn't a horse next door. Maybe if I have permission, I could give the other horse a flake of hay so he's not right there next to my horse. Lots of management solutions that just make life so much easier. And, uh, and certainly better than trying to suppress the unwanted behavior. And, yeah. yeah. But, you know, we've been talking more kind of about more extreme problem behavior or unwanted behavior, but I think this is important to remember that this applies too for just other extra behaviors that might happen during your training session. You know, so say you're working with your dog and you're working on down and you do 10 repetitions and twice he sits instead of lying down. You know, it's, that didn't happen randomly. You know, so it's like, what, what did you do slightly differently there? Or how was he positioned slightly differently to start? Or what else was, was different that in those repetitions led to him offering, you know, the a different behavior than what you did in the repetitions before. So I had um, one of the, graduate students who's been working with me this um, semester. She, she has a cute little dog, Papillon, working on reinforcement delivery with her standing facing forward and the little dog standing at her side in basically like heel position. And what she was working on was just clicking and giving him a treat for him staying in that position. And every once in a while, as she was reaching down to give the treat, he would kind of spin out. So he'd, he'd rotate his, his back end away from her. And it was happening maybe like every fourth time or so. So she showed this video in one of my online classes and we were discussing it and we gave her all sorts of ideas to go off and try. But then she went back and she watched the video like over and over and over again and watched it in slow motion. And what she realized was that when she was leaning down and holding her hand one way, the dog would stay in position. When her hand was rotated, just I, I can't I can't show you because we're on a right, we're right. on a we're on a podcast. But when her hand was rotated just about an inch or so in a slightly different position, then the dog would rotate out of position. And so it wasn't that he was just like getting tired or getting fatigued or um, you know just randomly doing the behavior. It you could actually see in the video how when she changed the shape of her hand to deliver the treat he would pop out of position. And so then she was able to 
to go back and kind of clean it up and get him where he was consistently staying in position and then start very gradually varying her hand shape so that she could she could vary it and he could she could do bigger and bigger variation variations and he would stay in position but it was it was really interesting because it was a tiny little detail that if she hadn't had video there's no way she would have been able to figure that out so easy in in that situation to blame the learner um in Mm. that What, what were you going to say dominique well before we leave problem behaviors and go to something else i want your opinion on something So let's say you have a dog who's barking in the yard and you know what the function of the behavior is. You're clear on that. The dog has been reinforced for barking because people pass by and he's able to chase the strangers away. And and you, you don't want to take the dog inside. You want to leave him outside. And so you cannot control the environment very well because you never know when a tourist is going to be on the street or when a car is going to drive by or another dog. So you decide that you're going to create a chain. So the chain is you're inside the house. You hear the dog bark. So you go outside, you call the dog, the dog comes and you give him a treat. And so it's pretty good because you can interrupt the barking pretty soon. Instead of having five minutes of barking and your neighbors all hate you, you get a couple of barks and then the dog comes to you and he just he's happy to get the treats. Eventually, the dog becomes savvy enough that, you know, if he's bored in the yard and he wants to get your attention, he can start barking at a butterfly. I'm exaggerating, but you know, dogs are smart and they know now that, you know, if they bark, he'll come out the the house and you'll, you'll give them a treat. So it's a chain. It's a deliberate chain. You know, when you, you know, when you start doing this, that you are creating a chain that you are reinforcing the barking but it's kind of a chain that you deliberately accept to create because it's kind of the worst case scenario between taking away the enrichment of the backyard and creating this chain, you decide that you're going to create the chain and leave the dog in the backyard. What's your opinion on on that? I would say I think my opinion is, it depends, you know, it, it's kind of, it's one of those things where, where from the beginning, you have to decide like what your goal is and you, what you want the dog to be doing. And I, I think, I don't know, I've, I'm have, I've thoughts for several different ways we could go with this, but you know, so I think one, one thing that, that may be interesting here is like, Thinking about even at the beginning when you're giving the dog starting to bark and then you're calling the dog in and giving the dog a treat, it seems to me in that situation you're using you're using the treat more to interrupt the barking yep. and get the dog to stop barking. Yep. Um, which is which you're using positive reinforcement, but you're still trying to use positive reinforcement to get rid of behavior. That's right. Rather than from the beginning being kind of, I know y'all have talked about the constructional training several times on the podcast, you know, rather than using the, the positive reinforcement and the treats to interrupt the barking, it would be, it, it takes more planning and more, more upfront work often, but to think about from the beginning, like when the dog sees a person, what do I want the dog to be doing? And, fr- and from the beginning, you know, even if you do use treats, um, from the beginning, working on and building some sort of um, routine or some sort of behavior so the dog has something to be doing when a person comes by or when a car comes by um, that is behavior that is acceptable to you rather than just waiting for the dog to start engaging in the the problem behavior and then using the treat to interrupt it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, taking that constructional approach of what is the behavior that I want to build 
rather than what is the behavior that I want to get to stop or interrupt. And with, you know, with barking, with chasing, that's a hard one to deal with. It's a hard one to deal with when you don't control the environment, you know, because you're not next to your dog 24 seven in the backyard, because if you were, if you were with them all the time, then it would be easier. But isn't that the argument that Michaela came up against with the cribbing? Mm, I like that. <laughs> because I know when, when Michaela first started talking about the cribbing study, it was like, well... I'm not there um, all the time. We're not there all the time. If we were there 24-7 mm. with the horses, yeah, we could, we could eliminate the cribbing because we could be there redirecting the horse all the time. And so how do you mm. deal with these behaviors that are occurring in our absence that we don't want? Mm. And so that was one of the mental puzzles to wrap our mm. minds around with the cribbing is how do you address something like this when you're not going to be mm -hmm. there 24-7? And you start out, mm. as, we, as Michaela demonstrated so magnificently with the cribbing study, you create an environment in which you get very rapid extinction of the behavior, meaning you know the, that Blondie was put in a stall where the cribbing surfaces were covered. She could not crib because the cribbing surfaces were covered. There was a very rapid extinction of that behavior in that particular environment. You build, you build a behavior. Uh, uh, Blond Michaela taught Blondie how to eat hay sounds so silly when you say it out loud. It's a horse. She knows how to eat hay. But how to eat hay and only eat hay. So not, not take a bite, crib, take a bite, crib, but just eat hay and keep eating and keep eating. And then you gradually fade in. You fade out the, the training environment. You fade in the real world. And no, you can't control the real world. But it's in all things, how do we fade in conditions so that the behaviors continue to work. When, we're, when we start riding, we're riding, hopefully, in fairly contained, safe environments. Now, I'm riding, I, you start a young horse in an arena. You're not starting them in the middle of a fairground with uh, you know, fireworks. fireworks going off. Um, but eventually, that horse may be absolutely cool as a cucumber uh, riding in the middle of a fairground with fireworks going off um, because the conditions under which the behaviors are solid have expanded and expanded and expanded to be able to include the chaos of the fairgrounds. Yeah, what was really interesting in Michaela's research, if someone hasn't seen it yet, they really should, uh, was that the what she called the training conditions for the cribbing during which the cribbing was not happening was parallel happening at the same time. That's right. You know, during a one day period, there might be a, I don't know, half hour training condition in which the cribbing was not happening. And the rest of the day was just his normal life and the cribbing was happening. Yeah. And so, because that, that may be, you know, something where people say, well, I, I can't do it because, like you said, I'm not there all the time. But yes, she did do it, even though they were both happening, except never, you know, when they were training conditions, it was not happening. And the rest of the day it was happening. So, so I think one important thing to be thinking about here is not just like what behavior you want, but like what are going to be the cues for that behavior. So like going back mm. to your dog example, Dominique, in the in the scenario you described, the dog is stopping barking and now the dog's quiet. But the cue for that is the person coming out on the porch and saying, come here, come here, puppy, come back inside. Whereas so so you're always going to need the person to maintain that, which right. so if we had if we had like at Blondie, if we taught blah, blah, ah, can't talk too many bees, if we taught Blondie not to crib, but the cue was someone standing next to her giving a hand signal or something like that. You know, someone would have to be standing outside of her barn, outside of the stall for the rest of her life. So it's, instead mm -hmm. it's thinking about like, not only 
what behavior we want, but like long term in the final conditions, what should be the cues that are that are going to cue that behavior? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to the want to hang on to both of those and really think about them for a bit more, but going back to you know, the there was the conditions under which Bonnie did not crib and simultaneously the rest of the during the training periods uh, when, when the training conditions were not present and hay was being passed out normally Blondie would continue to crib and the same thing happened with with Bobby the, the horse with the separation anxiety that in the stall in which the training occurred he could eventually just eat his grain and hang out and look at the other horses and there was no weaving there was no anxiety but my understanding is that when they fed him in the original stall that he weaved and paced and was it's a it's astounding the stimulus control that occurs and there's that's really i think very powerful understanding because you could say you know but i i don't want the dog barking it has to stop and, and if, if, it, if the dog is barking at all, I've failed. Well, maybe if you're living in an apartment where the landlord has told you, if that dog doesn't start barking, stop barking, you're, you know, you're, I'm going to kick you out on the street, that maybe, yes, it's a bit of an emergency. Uh, but, but for the most part, you know, while you're doing the training, you may be saying, okay, under these, I'm going to turn the dog out. And if somebody goes by, I know I'm just going to get normal dog behavior. She's going to park, bark at the people going by. That's just normal, normal pre what this dog does. But then I'm going to set up these, this very structured training process where I'm going to use these very tight, clean loops to start out with. And in these conditions, there will be zero barking. I'm going to start with these really clean, clean loops and expand it out. And, and so I will eventually get under these conditions, I will have a dog that can go out in the bar backyard. And when people go by, she'll just continue to chew on her bone or whatever it is. And that while I am training that, I will understand that there will be this other universe that coexists um, at the same time um, that contains the behaviors that I don't want. And I'm not going to be pulling my mm -hmm. hair out thinking, oh, I failed, I failed, I failed, because these two conditions are possibilities. And I think that was a really important understanding that came uh, first with the work that was done with the separation anxiety with Bobby, and then also what Blondie, or what Blondie was showing us. Well, it just opens up so many solu possible, possible solutions. You know, there's it, hope. It opens up the ability to relax and say, okay, while I'm training this, I'm gonna have, you know, I I'm not going that I'm not gonna start at the finish line. I can't start at the finish right, line. Right, right. The finish line may may be this this beautiful example of a dog that can be out in the backyard not barking. A child who can go to a restaurant and, and where you don't have to feel as though you want to hide under the table because of the child's behavior. We're not trying to begin at the start at the finish line. And we recognize that while we're training, that under certain conditions the unwanted behavior will be there. So how do we manage that? Kind of going off of that and the clean loops, I think this is really, really important because I think often when we have problem behavior, we try to correct it in the moment and then we get into situations sometimes where we create these chains or these complex situations where where it never goes away so like a, an example would be like say you have a horse and when you get him out of his stall he kind of barges forward and tries you know to run you over and so you could end up with a situation where you end up training the horse like you start opening the stall he starts barging forward, you cue him to back, he backs up several several steps, waits politely, you go in, and now you can take him out. 
But if you try to train it in the moment there where the barging is already happening, you're creating a chain. You could inadvertently long-term end up with this chain, which never goes away, where he, he just thinks, okay, human, I barge, then she cues me to back, and then she gets me and we go out together. And I think that's one of the dangers when we're trying to, we're trying to train in the moment or when we're focused on getting rid of, getting rid of the, of a problem behavior or unwanted behavior is that we're trying to correct, we're using positive reinforcement, but we're trying to correct things in the moment. And we end up with these messy, it's like Alex says, we're training on top of our, our bad training. And we end up with these, these messy loops that yes, in the end, we kind of get what we want at the, at the end of the chain, but there's, there's messy elements that get all connected and get, get chained in there together. And we think, oh, eventually it will go away and it never goes away. So finding, mm-hmm. finding that clean starting point is really, really essential. And I was going to add, Dominique, that you came up with the perfect way of managing that, the retirement farm, where we, you had these magnificent stallions who were uh, very fit, were used to performing at a very high level, and then they retired. And they're brought to the retirement farm, and their job is now to be turned out and to mm-hmm. go out to turn out calmly, in a relaxed way, handled by the grooms, the stall cleaners, who are not professional trainers, was a real mm-hmm. challenge. And mm-hmm. rather than having them practice unwanted behaviors, rather than having them get into a kerfuffle with a with the groom who's not a trained horse and doesn't have the training of a of a professional trainer that you created shoots so the horses took themselves out to turn out basically you know they did yeah. uh, and then and then after they'd had their turnout and were feeling relaxed mm-hmm. then they came in and they had training sessions in the afternoon when they could focus and when they could learn the skills that were needed for them to be able to go out to turn out with a groom and uh, and just walk out calmly. Well, for sure, management is all, when you can do that, you know, if you can do just change the environment, change the antecedent, just do management and then train, that's wonderful. What was interesting in Michaela's cribbing research was because you always hear, don't try not to let the animal rehearse the unwanted behavior, especially when you don't control uh, the reinforcer, you know, you're just building this history of reinforcement for the unwanted behavior. So don't let the animal rehearse it. But What was interesting here was that even though Blondie was rehearsing cribbing 23 hours a day, she was still training it uh, one hour a day and she was successful at the end. So she wasn't even training it one hour a day. She was training it. No, I know. 20 minutes. Training it. uh, I think it was like two days a week. Yeah, I think it was only on the weekends. But that's the power of, of stimulus control and cues. You know, we, we think of behavior just being behavior and happening, but behavior gets very closely attached and intertwined to the, to the environmental conditions that it's happening under. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, you know, when, because we were talking, this whole conversation started with the blog on punishment not being so effective. But you know how when we try to train a behavior we do want, it can be pretty easy to uh, disrupt when it's not under, you know, a lot of stimulus control, different stimulus control that it hasn't been generalized. Well, same thing for punishment. The punishment, if you punish in this context, fine, the dog or the horse will not do the unwanted behavior, but you have to make sure that you're punishing in every single context where this unwanted behavior will happen because 
you know, it may not be stable either. Just as when you are trying to train, if you're trying to punish, you better generalize the punishment. That's a lot of a lot of work, and it's not a lot of fun. Well, and, and the other thing that people often get into as well is, you know, for behaviors like barking or things like that that are that the dog's doing in response to things in the environment. Often people use punishment, but then they become a cue that punishment is going to happen. And then, you know, so the, the, the dog learns, okay, when the person's here, I don't do the behavior, but when the person's mm -hmm. gone, you know, so yeah, there's, there's so many reasons not to use punishment, but you know, one of them is, is that you have to be, pre you become, you often become the cue or part of the stimulus control. And if you're not there, you know, the animal still does the behavior. Mm -hmm. Or they learn to avoid you so that then you're not around to, to deliver the punish. To punish. Hmm. So let's, let's switch. You, you mentioned the, uh, the reinforcement, uh, that, that little change in the reinforcement that made such a difference in whether the dog swung out or, or not. And so you did a, a really great post on assess your reinforcement delivery. This is a great stopping point. We're about to talk about another of Mary Dale Cheerio's posts. So rather than interrupt midway through, I'm going to stop us here. We'll begin next time with a discussion of food delivery. This has been a long podcast, so I'll just add that if you want to read more of Mary's posts, you can find her at stalecheerios.com and also at behaviorexplore.com. And as always for my work, go to theclickercenter.com. So until next week, have fun with your horses. <laughs>